because that's a lot of what's going on in Jesus is when he's standing beside marginalized people, when he's answering questions with questions, when he's sitting at the table with these guys who were not the A team, who were not the experts and inviting them to be the future, you know, be the, 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 gen the, the genesis of this new, this new way of being the kingdom. He was, he was redeeming the story of who God was and what God was up to in their eyes. And so I don't really believe we'll ever live deeply, any more deeply with Jesus than the stories we've heard about. He, his father, even the spirit, we'll never live any deeper with Jesus as an apprentice of his if our, if our stories keep us from, our memories and stories keep us from doing that. That was Casey Tigret, and this is the Things Above podcast. Well, my guest today is a friend of mine, and I'm so glad that he is joining us today, Casey Tigret. He is a writer. He's a speaker. He's a spiritual director. He's been a pastor. He currently serves as theologian in residence at Parkview Christian Church in Chicago, Chicago, Chicago area, to be more specific. Uh, and he blogs at pathios.com and is the host of his own podcast called Otherwise, which is excellent. I've been on that podcast. Um, his passion is for compelling content that leads people to the lives of, uh, to, to live lives of beauty and grace. I kind of messed that up, but it's okay because I'm human. Um, and he's a member of the Apprentice Institute Advisory Board. So Casey, welcome, friend. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. We've known each other uh, for a while now. Quite How long have we time. known each other? Gosh, it would have been... Eight, nine... The second or third apprentice gathering. So was it the second one? We're coming maybe. up on nine. So. I I insulted you. That's how was that we my met. sweater vest. It was the sweater vest conversation. Yeah, I wore a sweater vest on stage, and I think you tweeted out, "James Brian Smith is trying to rock the sweater vest" or something. I think you were bringing it. I was commenting it about back. you bringing it back, bringing it yeah. back, and which was yeah. not really a not really a put down, just more of a like, okay, this is happening. So no, yeah, I good. laughed. I thought it was funny. It was so, good. so yeah. So I knew right away you were funny, and um, and it's been it's been a great friendship, and I've I've really appreciated you on so many levels. Likewise, for sure. Uh, well, well, your your first book, uh, "Becoming Curious," uh, subtitle: a "Spiritual Practice of Asking Questions," is great. It's been out a little bit now, but you have your latest book, which is titled "As I Recall." Subtitle: Discovering the Place of Memories in Our Spiritual Life is more recent, and uh, I love it, and I want us to talk about that today, if you're okay with that. I would be fine with that. That'd be good. Good. I, I know how it is when you write a book. It's kind of fun. It's like your kids or something. It's fun to talk about them. Um, but I was. let me just read um, one person who endorsed this book wrote, as I recall, that's the name of the book does something no other book I have seen dares to do. It explores the importance of memory in our spiritual formation. Our experiences, memories, and stories form a script that influences our lives in deep ways. This beautifully written, honest book is full of much-needed wisdom. Uh, prepare to be changed. I thought that was an excellent endorsement. I don't know if you recognize that the, particular endorsement. endorsements. Let's see. I don't, I don't really pay much attention. You might want to look at the, at the book. That was my endorsement, Casey. <laughs> That's what I wrote about your book. Oh, I love and it. I meant every word. Oh, I appreciate I that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it really is. I, um, I mean, it's, 
I mean, I think when you first were talking to me about the book, I think I even said to you then that it's such a, it's a topic that we don't talk about. And I think I mentioned maybe St. Augustine's the only person I'd ever read that talks about memory as a part of our formation at all. So it isn't um, something, it, there really isn't a lot of, of, which is the most frightening thing in the world for an author, because you may think it'd be a great thing to say, nobody's really written on this before, but actually it's kind of frightening to say, why hasn't anyone written on this before? There's, <laughs> maybe there's nothing the new under the sun. <laughs> so that means either this is something that's uh, fertile ground or it's a run, run screaming kind of thing. So I, I chose the former and it's been and, and, and now that you've written it, what would you say? I would say, I would say, I think there need to be more books on this. I think the the ability totally to write one that covers, because there's so much left. I I feel like I left a lot of stones unturned, and rightly so. Uh, there's so much goodness and richness around this topic uh, that that could be discovered by multiple volumes. But I, I only had one, and IVP was very serious about let's not have this be nine thousand pages. So. A plus B yeah. equals we need more books about how memory interacts with spiritual formation. Well, I totally agree. And I mean, it's, and even reading the book reminded me even more so of how much, well, I mean, what you're saying, it reminded me that we do need more and just how impossible it is in one book to cover everything. Yes. Um, well, here's an opening question that I ask everybody on the podcast that I have who's written a book, pretty basic. Why, why did you write this book? The book for me came from the intersection of a bunch of different pieces of my life. I, I feel like books are a collation of a person's life. So you're never writing something outside of what you're actually doing. And so in my world, operating as a spiritual director, it was engaging with people and talking about their engagement with God and their life in the kingdom. And what I often found was that the hangups, the struggles they were facing, had so much to do with things that had happened in the past, and it could be recent past or distant past. And so a lot of times when we would have the conversation about, they, they may mention, I feel distant from God. And my, my question would be, well, tell me about a time when you felt close to him. And so that memory, a lot of times was able to set the table, the context for if, if you feel distant from God, what's the standard? How, how do you remember being close to him? So we, we did a lot with things that had happened in the past. The second thing is I, I am in this point in my life where I began to discover how many of my past experiences had contributed to who I am now and habits that I have or worldviews that I have or world, as worldviews change or as, uh, as perspectives change, you start to see what's underneath it. So the older I get, the more I realize, oh, none of this stuff, like I said before, none of this stuff is original. It all came from this event or this uh, image of God that I have came from a sermon I heard when I was a kid. And so I began to see how much that played into me. And then the third thing was uh, my tradition, I'm from the evangelical stream, so the world word-centered stream, easy for me to say. Um, and so as I began to look at the scriptures, there's so much about how God formed people that had to do with remembering. So whether that was Israel remembering that I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt, or Jesus saying, remember me every time you do this, remember me, remember what's happened here. 
or even Paul calling people back that you were once darkness. You remember that? But now you've been transformed in the light of love. And so I saw this thread going through the lives of others, the lives of myself, in the work of the scriptures that says memory is key. And memory makes us both individually and corporately, it makes us who we are. So if that's the case, what is God at work doing in our in our memories? So that's really where the book came from. Well, you know, it reminds me, I mean, um, of in my own experience in writing, because it sounds like Casey, you're saying, look, from my from spiritual direction, from working with people, from my own my own journey. Um, I mean, a, a number of things came together that made you think this is something that I, I'm I'm sort of sensing that it, it's been around, but I haven't actually taken the time to focus on it. And and, and that's what I love about writing is that there's something that you know, it's kind of important. You've thought about it before, but then once you lock in on it, you see more and more and more and more. That was the case for me with beauty. When I started studying beauty and then it became the focal point, suddenly everywhere I'm turning, I'm seeing it and I'm thinking, wow, this is really big. Like this has always been around, but why wasn't I writing about it? And I feel the same way about your book. It's memory is so crucial to like every single day of our lives. Like from remembering where my car keys were, to someone says something and I remembering, I mean, even just our conversation, I'm like, when did we meet Casey? You know, when did, oh, that was, let's see, when the second conference, I mean, that's a memory, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, and yet something that's so obvious, it's not something we think about or reflect a lot uh, in our lives. I think that's really, so I'm so glad that you've written the book and, uh, and I'm glad to hear the story of how it came to be. Yeah. But, well, let's jump in. So on page six, you talk, uh, you use an image, the imagery of gathering shells. And I noticed that's going to, that's a theme that runs or a thread that runs throughout the book. And I think it's an excellent one. Uh, so for listeners who haven't read the book yet, talk about the shells on the beach and your daughter and, and what that means for memory. Yeah. Yeah. The image, images are, as you know, so incredibly important because they connect us to bigger things that we can't quite wrap our hands around. So my family and I, our favorite trip to take is to beaches. I mean, just, it could be in the U S or the Caribbean or wherever. And, uh, one of the best activities that we had as a family that my daughter, you know, she wanted to go and play in the waves. And then at night we wanted to walk the beach and it was like, I don't want to walk the beach. That's boring. And so we're like, well, why don't we look for shells? And so that began this whole tradition of looking for shells and not just looking for them, but picking some up. And especially when we were traveling to the Caribbean, it's, it's, it's takes some doing to actually get shells from there into your carry on luggage, not discovered, <laughs> and back to the back to home. Uh, but we also found that when you go to collect shells, there are some that you pick up and you see them and they look really disgusting. Like they're covered with seaweed that's hardened over time, but then you flip it over and actually the inside is really beautiful or they've been smashed against the coral. And so what would be a pristine sort of the stereotypical uh, shell shape with the ridges and the in the circular shape has been broken and it's jagged and it's actually sharp to touch and then of course you find the ones that are they're perfectly shaped and so for us that's how we create memories it's as if we walk through life and we create collect these experiences so these each experience is like a shell so we sense something we taste it touch it see it feel it smell it 
And then we sit with it and we look at it. And that's what happens in our short-term memory. If we focus on it and we feel like it's worth keeping, then it goes into our long-term memory. If we don't, we toss it back in the surf and we, we move on. But then once it gets into our long-term memory, it becomes a story. So I have this jar of shells in my office and all of them have a story and I can look at them and say, oh yeah, we found this one there. And this one was really cool because my daughter found it. It was the first one. And so they all become stories. They all become things that we remember, but also not just details. They are circumstances and they're bigger pictures. And then they become a script. So now my daughter has this way of acting when we go to the beach and in the evening, we don't say, okay, now it's time to gather shells. It's just that's the script that we operate by. And so that's how our memories work. So a person, for example, who collects this shell early in their life, that God is the angry, scary, punishing God, has that experience that becomes a memory, but then it becomes a story. And the story through which they see God, the lens they see God in the world is that I'd better keep him happy or else he's going to slam me with the smite button or whatever. And then we live our lives doing what our good friend Dallas called sin management. We, we just try to stay away right. from ticking God off. And so that's the script we live by. So that's why memories are so powerful. They make us who we are, not only as relational beings or as professionals or as parents or sons or daughters or cousins. They also make us who we are in our relationship with God. And so the shells then become this metaphor for how is it that we collect the things that we remember, and then how do we interpret and understand the stories and the scripts that those things create? Mm. Well said. That's that's brilliant, and that that's exactly what it is, right? Because so many of our experiences don't. I mean, as you put it, you look at it and you say, "Well, maybe that's not important." You move on, like. Um, my choice of socks yesterday. I might be able to remember that. It's not really that important. So I'm going to move along from that. But I may have had some discussion yesterday with someone that was like deeply meaningful and crucial, right? Maybe even life-changing because I think we remember those, those experiences, whether it's a, a moment, an event, a conversation, and those really stick. Casey, why, why do some of those memories uh, stick with us more than others? What is it about that experience that that one's one that I know is going to stay with me yeah. and shape me? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, one of the simple reasons is sometimes it's because our brain is trying to protect us. Uh, in times of trauma, uh, sometimes our brain will actually create vacuums where memories can sort of disappear or our brain will just shut down and keep us from archive, especially if it's a negative traumatic experience. Sometimes our brain will protect us. But often the reason that things stick, and I used to think that was that the contemporary wisdom was your brain's like a muscle. And so if you don't use it, then it actually it will stop working that well. And that if you had people had good memories were people who exercised the muscle. But it's actually that's not that it's not that simple. I was reading a book about memory champions. So people who com who compete in these memory contests to see how much stuff they can remember. And these guys are, these people are professionals. Like they'll remember, they'll memorize decks of cards, like two decks of cards and repeat them off the top of their head, each card in sequence. Like Rain Man or something. Yes. And so <laughs> they'll do that and compete. And they said the way that they remember them is not because they have great memories. It's because of how they pay attention. 
And so mm. memory is all about attentiveness. The thing that moves an experience from our short term to our long term. Now, everything except for smell. Our smell experiences go straight to our long term memory. So everything you smell, you have it. You will remember that forever. So mm. if you have a smell when you're 16 and you smell it again when you're 56, it will come back to you and you'll know exactly what it is. But everything else other than smell, the thing that takes it from short term to long term is attentiveness. And this is why mm. trauma and it, you know trauma or let's take it down a notch to like unmet expectations or disappointments stick with us so long because they're so they draw our attention. We tend to fixate on the things that are negative or the things that have had a, a painful impact on us. There's not a lot of times that we get caught up just thinking about, sometimes we get a, a Bruce Springsteen moment where we're caught up in the glory days, but most of the time we're focused on these traumatic things and it's all about attention. And so the reason some of those things stick is because we pay more attention to them than others, which you can kind of see that in the scriptures too, where you have repeated festivals and each of the festivals was to remind, pay attention, remember, these booths, this festival we celebrate is about the migration of people from slavery to freedom. Don't forget that. And so much so, we're going to do this every year so that you pay attention to that idea. So that's why some things stick and some things, some things don't. Mm. Mm. So that's, that's fascinating. And I, and I was paying attention to when you were talking right then. I think you quoted Springsteen. I did. Oh, the boss is, the boss is like, that's my jam. That's your jam. The boss is my jam. Well, the jam. fact that you just called him the boss it tells me a great deal. Yes. Um, not a fan. I'm just, I'm sorry. I know that's sacrilegious as, I guess, as an American, but um, listeners don't need to know that, but I don't know why I don't really care for Springsteen's music. <laughs> we'll spend some time with that, you and I. Maybe I can, Would maybe you? I can convert. Well, I could really get some other listeners mad because I don't like the Dave Matthews band either. And that's my wife cannot understand. They're a bit of a different wrong, taste, but I they're, the Springsteen thing I don't know. That's you don't know. We're gonna have to me? we're gonna have to work on that. You and I. Okay, we'll pray for me. Yes. Um, <laughs> well, I you say on um, let's see where was that? I love this quote. Uh, page six. You say, uh, without memory, there's no formation. Whether those memories are joyful or treasured, ambiguous and circumstantial or traumatic we're god's memory made beings and when i read that i i just paused and i thought and this is this is a kind of a big generic-ish kind of question but why did god make us memory beings i mean what he could have made us without these things called memories why do you think god made us with this capacity we have the capacity to think and process we have imagination we have all these capacities why memories I think that's a wonderful question. My, my initial blush with that is all of the things you named are the reasons why. So if you think about creativity and imagination, a lot of creativity and imagination comes from us accessing things that we know and remember and using them differently. So a creative musician, let's say Dave Matthews, a creative musician takes something like an acoustic guitar that they've heard Woody Guthrie play, that they've heard other musicians, they've heard our friend Rich Mullins play, and and does something different with it. That creativity only happens because 
Dave remembers these chords and these notes that he learned in the past. So everything that we have really, really flows out of the things that we remember, the things that we have archived in our head, the work that we do relationally, church leaders, especially a lot of church leaders, we lead from the place of remembering experiences we've had in the past. That's why first, my first church was a mess because I had no experience. And so experience is just memory of practice and practical application. And so the re- I think the reason God made us that way is because he knew we would become and we would be formed and we would be shaped into the people that could live this kingdom life because we had this archive of experiences. And the plus side is we can do very creative, healthy, wonderful things with it. You know, preaching a lot of it, a lot of preaching and teaching is memory. We'll be up in the middle of it and say, ah, oh, this is a this is a, f- a phrase I need to use or something I remember that I want to bring in. But there's also the downside to that, which is as much as we remember good and constructive things, we also hold on to these really difficult or ambiguous or seemingly irrelevant pieces as well. So I think, I believe God created us that way so that we could become the kind of people who live these full, uh, Irenaeus's quote, man fully alive. A man fully alive is someone who is accessing the full complement of everything they've experienced and bringing it underneath whatever God is doing in that present moment. So I think that I would, I think that's one reason why there are probably more than that. Uh, but that's the one that occurs to me just now. Mm-hmm. Well, it makes sense because, and your Irenaeus quote, the, I think it's the glory of God is the human person fully alive, right? Mm-hmm. And and what you're saying is all those other capacities are completely dependent on the capacity of memory because we can't, I mean, even a, a something as simple as two plus two equaling four, I and I can't even really do that unless I have some experience with the number two and what adding is and... Right. I yeah. mean, and certainly, and, and even though you had to use Dave Matthews, the idea of creativity, I think also <laughs> is, is crucial because yeah, you can't, and, and writing a book, like you couldn't, you could not have written this book if you didn't have the capacity of memory. Right. Cause you were writing from, well, that reminds me of this. And then you pull that up and that sort of thing. And that's, that's fascinating. And it's, here's a tiny little digression. I just kind of want to do it, but did you happen to see the movie Memento? Yes. There's a part about Memento in the book. Um, it's a brief introduction at one of the oh, one of the chapters, okay. but it, that's such a that's been one of my favorites for a long, long time. And th- just to your point, I was sitting writing, and I was like, "Oh, that movie works so well here," because without people who have never seen it, the the protagonist of the story has no short term memory, and everything that's happening to him is happening like it's happening the first time. And so it's almost as if he's living in reverse and it's just unbelievable acting and directing and storytelling, but being able to see that, you know, that a memento, like a reminder is not enough, but yeah, yeah. That's, that's one of my favorite, favorite movies. Yeah. I, yeah. I forgot that that was the yeah, beginning. Cause it, yeah, that movie's one of those talk about memories. I mean, when you just seeing that movie and I don't like highly recommend it to a listener, Cause it's, there's dark stuff and there's, you know, you have to be careful with recommending movies, but, uh, to, to a, just the larger audience, but it is definitely, as you said, 
uh, very thought provoking because when you when you discover this character can't he has no short short term memory, what in the world would that be like? I mean, that's what as a viewer I was going. How do you get through a day? Because he had to like leave himself mementos or notes all over the place. Isn't that right? It's been a long time since I've seen the movie, but to the point doesn't he have to? Yeah, to the point where he started tattooing certain details into his skin so that he wouldn't forget the story that he was pursuing. He was chasing down his, his wife's killer and uh, he was, wouldn't right. forget some of the details of the investigation. So he tattooed them on his, on his body. So he's covered from shoulders to waist in just information and data and details. And yeah, and I agree it's, there's some darkness in it. So viewer beware, cause you're probably going <laughs> to have to watch it twice too, just to, just to get it. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, well, I love when people make bold statements. I, I'm, I, my highlighter comes, the cap comes off my highlighter when I, when I see a bold statement I really like, but you, on page 47, you write, uh, we will live with Jesus, whether we desire it this way or not, only as deeply and pervasively as the stories we've gathered will allow us to go. I mean, that's, that's a big statement, right? Yeah. Uh, unpack that for, for someone listening that, cause that's, we'll live with Jesus only as deeply as we've allowed the stories that we've gathered to allow us. Cause that's what we've got in our memories, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm a person who's prone to a bit of exaggeration and hyperbole, but a lot of that phrase for me is pregnant with ache, just the ache of people who I've watched them live out their image of God. And they look around them at the experience of others living in the kingdom and they see so much joy and they see, they see so many things that they are efforting towards. They're, they're keeping practices, they're, they're reading books, they're going to conferences and they don't understand why they don't have this thoroughgoing, robust, vibrant relationship with God. And then I look at my own life, and I grew up in, in somewhat of a fundamentalist kind of culture. It wasn't a broad brush thing. It wasn't everybody. But a lot of what I grew up under was the scary, shaming narrative. And my view of God really limited how deeply I could live with him because it wasn't necessarily trust as, was, as much as it was fear. And so the story that I carried from the memory of sermons, from the memory of um, teaching on piety, teaching on morals and ethics, from sermons about how drinking and drugs will send you to hell. We, we always skipped over the gluttony part, though, which I thought was interesting. Anyway, uh, yeah. I, I carried those with me. And so the depth to which I was able to live as an apprentice of Jesus in the kingdom of God was limited directly by the memories and stories that I had of who that God was, what his community was like, and what I was allowed to experience. And so we will, we will live as deeply as our stories and our memories will allow us to go, which is not a fatalistic statement. All it does is it gets us to say, so what are those memories and stories? And where is God working to redeem even stories about himself 
because that's a mm. lot of what's going on in Jesus is mm-hmm. when he's standing beside marginalized people, when he's answering questions with questions, when he's sitting at the table with these guys who were not the A team, who were not the experts and inviting them to be the future, you know, be the, 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 gen- the, the genesis of this new, this new way of being the kingdom. He was, he was redeeming the story of who God was and what God was up to in their eyes. And so I don't really believe we'll ever live deeply, any more deeply with Jesus than the stories we've heard about. He, his father, even the spirit, um, I want to go with a Trinitarian understanding. We'll never live any deeper mm-hmm. with Jesus as an apprentice of his. If our, if our stories keep us from our memories and stories keep us from doing that. I, you know, I, I agree a thousand percent really because, um, and as you know, I mean, that, that was the work I was doing on the book that became the good and beautiful God, because I mean, I did all this work in, in formation to training and discipleship. And the thing that I, I just wasn't prepared for in all the years of field testing, working with people was just how people had such toxic narratives of God. And there I was teaching them about solitude and silence and fasting and confession, all, you know, all of the disciplines we were doing all this work. And then I discovered, wow, if people have really toxic views of God, none of this is going to help. Like, I mean, until you begin to see God in the way that Jesus is revealing, uh, you, you can't move forward. And so that's why when I read your statement that I, just, I quoted earlier and that you're talking about, it just hit me because I thought, well, that's absolutely right. Yeah. Because we're so limited when, you know, I, I was thinking of a story just the other day. Uh, you know my wife, Megan, and, you know, she, she tends to speak her mind <laughs> in a lovely way. But uh, she was actually in a, in a small group, and they were using, <laughs> they were using uh, the good and beautiful God. And uh, she told me this story that there was a guy in the group who said to her, well, I don't know why we're using this book, which is a weird thing to do when you know the wife of the author is, <laughs> is in the room. I don't know why we're not, not using this book, and why aren't we just reading the Bible? And, and, uh, and my wife said to, said to this guy, well, you know what? If our narratives of God are really bad, I think maybe even reading the Bible is going to make us worse. Go, Magus. <laughs> yeah, I just thought, yeah, that's right. I mean, because, I mean, and that's where she was so perceptive of saying, look, if you have those narratives about God, uh, you can go to the Bible and just reinforce a lot of the negative ones and, and you're going to be stuck there. Yeah. I mean, so unless you're doing that hard work you're talking about, and that is to live with Jesus and let him narrate the story, um, it can be challenging. Well, I, I, Casey, I'm, I'm imagining that some of those who are listening are thinking, well, what about those painful memories? I mean, I mean, a lot of people go into therapy and I mean that positively you know, that's, I'm, I'm pro therapy. I mean, they're, they're doing a lot to deal with things that are pretty painful memories, painful experiences. And I know you write about, um, redemption and, and reintegration with our memories, but talk a little bit about how do you approach those painful memories, um, from our past? Yeah. Yeah. And my, my first, and I want to echo what you just said, this is, this kind of work isn't a solo affair. Um, after the book came out, I actually was uh, involved in some work with a counselor personally and t- 
dealt with some things that I was very surprised about, um, some, some memories that had a power that I didn't realize. And so I had two sides. There was the personal side of me that was very excited that we were doing that kind of work and it was hard, but it was good. There was also the part of me that was like, couldn't this have happened before I wrote the book? Because that would have been really good to tell that story. Uh, but it happened when it needed to happen. So, so I would say this isn't a solo affair. If you're hearing this and you have those traumatic, painful past stories, uh, don't deal with those by yourself. Don't take this book and go on a retreat and try to figure it out. Working with a therapist, working with a spiritual director or pastoral counselor that you trust is really important because a lot of redeeming our memories, a lot of it is going to be dealing with things that are not our fault, but that are our responsibility. So there are things that cause us bitterness because someone else did them too. I shouldn't have to deal with this, but because of the actions of someone else, now I have to. And so that can give us the desire to just step away from it and to shut it down. The other part is a lot of Christian culture is rightly talking about how forgiveness is able to take us out of this place of guilt and of shame, which is true. But forgiveness doesn't mean that the thing never happened. And so the mm -hmm. idea of forgive and forget is, it's just not possible. It's a nice phrase. Uh, it's, it's somewhat encouraging. Uh, and it's very simple and it fits on a bumper sticker, but it's just not, it just doesn't work that way because of our neuroscience. Those, especially those traumatic memories, unless our brain intervenes, they stick. And so the way with, that we do the work of redemption of our memories is to invite God to walk through them with us. And what we're asking him to do is to help us to embrace them. And the reason that's so scary is I think we believe that if we keep them separate from us and far away, even though we're thinking about them all the time, we feel like we can, we can sequester them off in some sort of like iron tank and we'll never have to deal with them. The further they are away from us, the more powerful they become. The way to disempower mm. our painful memories is actually to bring them close and to embrace them. That's why I think when Peter encountered Jesus on the beach after the resurrection, Jesus came up to him and just really in a, in a very gentle and graceful way, stepped into the pain. And he didn't condemn. He didn't beg. He didn't tell Peter to beg for forgiveness. He didn't you know, give him the cold shoulder or go all passive aggressive. He just said, how are we? Where are we at, you mm. and I? Do you, do you love me? And, and invites Peter to take and embrace what has happened. Every question, do you love me, is him embracing what has happened. Now, that's something that Peter did. A lot of times with our negative memories, it's something that was done to us. And so what it, what it brings us to do is to say, God, will you give me a perspective on what happened there and how you are going to use that to build something in me? that isn't there before. You're going to turn it to good, but it's also going to build something in me. And so sometimes it means forgiveness and forgiveness is not a set of paperwork that we file. It's not a one-time thing. It's more of an address where we live. So it may be a long, long journey of redeeming some of those really painful things that happened, but it's also changing our, changing our story too. The person who is mm. a, a, abused by a parent a father or a mother may have a may have a story about fathers and mothers and what they're there to do and what they do and what they what they're capable of 
And so I believe what God is doing is saying, let me step into that with you. Let's embrace this as something that was painful and don't minimize it. Don't call it something else, or maybe it was my fault. Let's embrace it for what it is. But then let's also say, what's the true story? Just Mm. as you've done throughout your books, what is the true story of God in the midst of all this? And let's begin to Mm. live by that. And then you have something to say to those who have gone through the same thing. Uh, I find that hopeful people, really hopeful, faithful people are people who've learned how to die. They're people who have learned how to suffer well and find their way through the other side to grieve well. And a lot of that's the work that we're doing when we engage with painful memories. Mm, That's good. You said something earlier, Casey, and you said there are things that, uh, how did you put it? The things that happened to us, but we're responsible for them? They're not our fault, but they're our our responsibility responsibilities. And by that, you mean someone else may have caused it, but it's our responsibility in what sense? So taking, for example, um, someone who disappoints us, they disappoint us. It's an act. It's a moment in time and we experience it. But the ripples from that then become something we have to deal with. The disappointer, if I can use that word, doesn't necessarily deal with that. It's the old language about forgiveness that we're trying to what is it? We're trying to poison someone, but we're eating it ourselves, something like that. Right. So mm-hmm. really and truthfully, for the person who has wounded us, there's a very good chance that they're not suffering. It's their fault. But now we're responsible for the aftermath. So whether yeah. that's the mental or emotional health, maybe that's a physical wound. Maybe that's a, maybe sometimes it's an economic thing. You know, we had a marriage fall apart and now I'm stuck with all of this debt or all of these bills. And I have this memory of this moment when all the things that I expected have fallen apart and now it's my responsibility. And that's where, Mm -hmm. that's where bitterness really starts to grow because it's like, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that jerk. And so, you know, then we begin to develop this aggressive campaign and all the while we've taken this memory of hurt and sort of set it over to the side. And it just grows in power. And so mm-hmm. what God is inviting us to, and especially through the teachings of Jesus about repentance and acknowledging the darkness, is just to embrace that and say, this is, this is what it is. And let's begin to live differently as a result. Mm, I, I like that. Yeah, there's, there's a, a prayer practice that I use, and I, I do it. I, I probably if I'm being really honest, like once a month, I try to do do it more than once a month. And it's, it's a, something I do sometimes on like a Saturday because it takes a, a, a good hour plus. But one of the things, it's got a several sort of practices within this prayer practice. And, and one of them is about forgiveness and forgiving other people. And it kind of walks through and, but at one point in it, um, this practice asks you to sort of is, is say to the Holy Spirit, is there someone I need to forgive? And, and when I get to that, uh, quite often, I would say more often than not, uh, when I just get still, uh, someone will come to mind. Like the Spirit will bring somebody and some event to mind that, uh, that I clearly have unforgiveness toward. And, and, and it's the uncanny thing about it is, is that I in many cases, it's something I've totally, uh, to use your word, amnesia, like I've, I, I've completely blocked it or forgotten it, but it's still with me. I'm sort of, I'm talking to you now like you're my spiritual director, by the way. It's all good. 
it's, it's happened. And you're being, you're being, you're being a good spiritual. You're listening really well. Um, you're probably nodding or something <laughs> and that would be, and I can't see it, but anyway, so one experience I had Gacy was, was suddenly, and I gave that time out of, out of nowhere, my, um, my, my, uh, eighth grade gym teacher came to mind hmm. and it was like, I had not thought of this man for decades. And I thought, why did that come to mind? And then I remembered that, uh, the experience that happened, which was, um, one, one thing that, that they did every year was, <clears throat> um, they had a handball tournament and, and by handball, that's not the Olympic kind, but this was like racquetball just with your hands. It was, that's what we played back in gym back sure. then. And so, but if you, the, the, the kid, it was the, the boy who won the turn, the tournament for eighth grade got to play this gym teacher. And that was the big thing. And like the whole, the whole class would watch that happened. So it was a big deal. Well, anyway, so I won and I got to play this gym teacher and, um, and I'm left-handed, which I think you may know. And so, uh, and, and I was, I'm pretty, I was a pretty good athlete back in the day. And anyway, I beat him and my, my left hand just gave him fits because typically you hit to the weak hand. And so he was hitting to my left hand. And so I was, I, I beat him and, and he was angry towards me and he, he had been like a really nice guy to me. I think he liked me. And, but that after that experience, he made the rest of my, my eighth grade year miserable. And it was really painful. And he never, anyway, somehow I must have buried that experience. Like I didn't, anyway, so here it is. It comes to mind here decades later. And here I am sitting on a Saturday morning praying and I'm going, what do I do with this? And I thought, well, I need to forgive him. Right. And and so I started trying to forgive him and thinking about it. And long story short, I, I did look him up and he, he had passed away. So I, I couldn't like face to face forgive him, but, or voice to voice. But nonetheless, um, I, I needed to get to a point where I could say, you know, for whatever reason, I don't know why he was bitter towards me, why he behaved the way he did, but I'm not going to let that experience poison me. And and so I, I was able to kind of release it and let it go, even though I didn't get the chance to say to him um, physically that. But I mean, as a person writing so much on memory and a spiritual director, what do you, what what are you thinking as I'm telling this story? Well, the the amazing thing is how often that happens. How often these stories, these experiences, happen to us, and we don't we don't think about them, or we don't retain them in a way that we can access or that we pay attention to. And so then they come back up at a later time, which means that your your brain has actually changed shape. So the concept of neuroplasticity, like our brains can actually change shape in order to accommodate ideas because our, our memories are electrical impulses and our brain changes shape to make those electrical impulses fire, to connect, to stay, to stick. And so what that also means is it changed your brain and that's the same brain unless you know something i don't that's the same brain you've carried through your entire life <laughs> and right. so then the question becomes how much of your athletic life was influenced by that story because mm. you spent time scholarship for tennis and now now we're talking like old buddies here but you you spent time as an right. athlete and this was an early athletic experience how much of that what, how did that impact what you were able to do, positive or negative. 
So there is a sense that that negative memory could have fueled and changed, turned the way that you looked at competition, the way that you looked at hmm. any of those things. So as the as I've been sitting with this stuff for a long time for the book, those connections are some of the things that come out. And, and sometimes they seem very random. Sometimes it's not a one-to-one -one like handball to tennis uh, or competitive early and then competitive later. Sometimes they're broader. But sometimes those lost experiences have so much more impact on us than we ever we ever really thought. Hmm. So those those memories keep on informing us in ways, even if we're not conscious of it. Is that what you're yeah. saying? And that's where the this becomes. So a lot of this, a listener may be listening to this and going, "Are we still talking about spiritual formation?" Uh, we seem to like jumped into neuroscience and, and psychology, but that so that memory and that story then is what we bring into everything we do, including our life with God. And so that's why I believe that memory is as important a spiritual concept or discipline or practice as scripture or community or prayer, because it, it we bring our memories with us into each of those practices. Someone who remembers being shamed for what they eat when they fast, they bring that with them. And so that changes the experience of fasting. That's why when I have conversations with people about spiritual disciplines, I say, if you have had a history of anorexia or bulimia, I don't recommend fasting from food because it becomes mm -hmm. something different. It's no longer a discipline that helps you become sweet and strong so that you can live without the things that everything, getting everything you want it then becomes another way of abetting this really dark story. Mm. Yeah. And so you'd recommend fasting from media or technology yeah. or other things than, than just yeah. that. Yeah. Because those memories do come into play. Yeah. But not fasting from this podcast, of course. No, no. You must consume it with gluttony. Absolutely. No, that's, that's also under wrong. holy that's, obedience, that's, I think is how you usually say it. I, I usually do try to add that to for effect. Uh, well, let's, uh, Casey, thanks for all the time you've given me. It's fantastic. But let's, let's close with a, a discussion about, um, wisdom, something you write about wisdom. And, um, I think it's on page 75, but, you know, Dallas Willard defined wisdom as the knowledge of how to live well. And it wasn't until I was reading this section of the book that I was able to connect memory with wisdom uh, but I love this sentence you write, uh, from the labor pains of our memories of failure comes the birth of wisdom that leads us to live well on the journey of Jesus. And I thought, wow, that's, that's really what it is because, you know, when I'm, when I think about my life and whatever wisdom I've attained, I'd like to think I have some, it's mostly come from experiences and many of them, like, like I learned so much more from my failures. But that's where that wisdom comes from. It's like, well, I, you know, I know about that. So when I'm talking, in my case, I work with like a lot of younger students and they're figuring out life's journeys. And as they're talking to me about things, I'll think, okay, I did that. Like, <laughs> I remember when I was thinking what you're thinking as you're, whatever it is, thinking about a relationship that a person you're with or a job or whatever. I'm like, because I've been there and I've done that and I've had that experiences. And yet, again, usually when I've, when it's failed, like when I, you know, mistakes I've made, uh, I think that's where I've gotten that kind of wisdom. 
is that kind of what you were getting at with that statement that from the labor pains of our memories of failure, we actually become wise if we let it work? Yeah. Is that what you're getting Absolutely. at? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I The picture that comes to mind for me is we uh, last March, so March of 18, we moved into a new house and um, I was painting. I think I painted nine out of the 10 spaces, different spaces in the house. And so that was a lot of painting. And so I, I like painting, but I like painting when I have to do two coats. And the reason why is because I can do the first coat and then I can look back and see all the like spaces that I missed or the places where I thought, oh, I can get close enough with a brush there. And it's like, no, you, you, you actually can't. You're not that good. So it's both humbling and educational at the same time. Um, but it's, it's the ability to, to, to come back around again and do it differently the second time. And so when we fail at something, or even when we succeed, like success breeds the memory of, okay, when this situation comes again, this is what I'm going to do, because this was really helpful. But then the failure comes, ah, next time, I'm probably not going to speak up as quickly. Or next time, I'm not going to hit post on that Facebook post, because I remember what happened this time, and how many people I hurt, and how un wise and unhelpful that was. And so those memories are the things that were come back around again, because as we, we've talked about this already, there's nothing new under the sun. So we're going to come around to situations that are going to be very, very similar to things that we've experienced in the past, whether it's relationally, some are new, you know, there's new stuff that happens to us, but we can build on the wisdom we have from, from the old stuff. And the story of Moses in Deuteronomy is probably the one that helps the most here is you know, the whole book is set up by the fact that he's standing in a place he's already been and he's 40 years older. So I just turned, I'm turning mm. 42 in November. I know I'm ancient. Um, Young pup. I'm telling you what. So I'm imagining when I'm 82, if I'm standing in the exact same place I am now, what will I know then that I don't know now? And how can I share that wisdom? So you, you almost hear it in Moses's voice pleading with Israel going, listen, that whole 40 years, man, let's not do that again. That We made some unwise decisions. So let me give you the law again, but I'm giving it to you with a little more energy because now we're on the other side of this. And so it's hmm. just being able to compile these memories of relationships and faith growth and church and job and being able to see what they're teaching us and the wisdom of the wisdom of even the stuff that we've suffered and how we got into it and how it occurred and where trust played into it or where patience should have been exercised in this area or that. It's not about guilt. It's just, okay, if this comes around again, here are some of the things, here are some of the healthy ways that I'm going to handle it the next time that it happens. So yeah, so that's, that's the wisdom idea. And I, I I'm continuing to believe that wisdom is the thing that that rescues most of us from a, a bad image of God. Because wisdom allows us to understand that a lot of the story of, of the scripture is to help us understand what do we do to live well now as a result of these things, rather than what must we do or else. And I think that's I think that's a different kind of story. There's a reason why the Hebrews uh, the ancient Hebrew writers saw wisdom as a goddess, almost <laughs> as a as a divine mm. being, because there's a power to making wise decisions 
and thinking through, okay, where have we been and what do we know and what do we do now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I had never in, until your book actually made that connection between memory and wisdom, but you know, it's so absolutely clear when you think about it that um, there, you, you can't separate them. I mean, to, to be a wise person is to be a person with, with not only a memory, but a, a memory and with attention and reflection and focus, because it's, it's, it's one thing to remember it, but it's another thing to, to reflect on it and learn from it. I mean, I've got, I think that's what makes a really wise person is, is someone who, um, I mean, like you mentioned, like the Facebook post or whatever it is, some people have, they do those things. It's a mistake, but they don't really stop and think about it. Or that's maybe not the best illustration, but yeah, so many of our things, I think that we go through, <clears throat> it's not just that I have a memory of that bad experience or good, but that I actually reflected on yeah. it. And, and either way, it memory is crucial because I can't, I can't do this process of reflection unless I have memory. And, and I love that. And, and I think that's what I just, I love about the book so much is that memory is this fundamental thing to life. It's like breathing. It's so much a part of our everyday lives. And yet something we think so seldom about, I think that's what was so stunning about, about reading the book. And, 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 and that's why in my fantastic endorsement, yes. of the book, that's why I said, <laughs> I really meant what I said, you've really done what no other book in formation has done. And that is to take memory and just say, here's how it plays in our discipleship and formation. So, so thank you, brother, for following that up. Thank you for what, you know, paying attention when God was speaking to you through spiritual direction and through um, what it means to be a pastor and all these things that came together that made you become fascinated with, with uh, memory enough to write a book. Because I know, man, if you write a book, it's, it's a big, long commitment and it ain't an easy ride. So yeah. And the back thanks for yeah, taking the backstory of this one is it happens. I I wrote most of it as we were moving, so I'm writing between two different cities, three different houses, and in a transitionary period professionally. So, yeah, I, I'm actually sort of surprised that it actually came to be. So, so I'm I'm glad <laughs> that it is. It has been a blessing to other people, and uh, I actually give some thanks for some of the pain that gave birth to the stories that are in there. Um, I don't do that every day, but, uh, but today, today I do. And when I hear people reflect on it and say, this was helpful, I give thanks then. Mm, that's really good. That's really good. Well, Casey, I give thanks for you. And uh, I'm glad that you <clears throat> pointed out that I was bringing the sweater vest back um, some seven years ago. I think you should bring it back and this year, by the way. You, are you feeling I'm that? I'm feeling okay. maybe that 2019 is the year. Is it time? Is it's it the time? year of the fest. <laughs> you know, don't be shocked if when you are when you're here for that event, if I'm if I'm rocking. Oh it. please! So, I would be so excited. Yeah. <laughs> It'll make me so happy. And you'll tweet about it. Oh, if I, do. I will multiple times. <laughs> well, friend, thanks for being on the Things Above podcast for this conversation. You're a blessing to me and listeners. Please do go out and get um, and get this book because it is it is great and everybody needs to be thinking about the role of formation in in our lives in general, but certainly in formation. So, Casey, thanks, man. Thanks, Jim. My pleasure.
We'll see you soon. Blessings. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Casey Tigret. I know I did. And I hope you join me next week for episode 60. Until then, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at James Brian Smith. And you can learn more about this podcast at apprenticeinstitute.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and you can subscribe, which means you're going to get them automatically each week. My hope, as always, is that if one day you're asked, what's on your mind? Your answer will be, things above. <laughs>